0: They see the, the president of the United States treating the media this way and getting, you know, applause for it. They, they then see a candidate for Senate body slam a reporter and get elected the next day, and they go, maybe, maybe this is fine, you know, and that's troubling.
1: What's it mean for press freedom when the president devotes so much time to bashing journalists? I'm Michael O'Connell, and you're listening to It's All Journalism. Welcome to It's All Journalism. My name is Michael O'Connell, here with another podcast. Actually, here with the first of two special podcasts this week from the Association of Alternative News Media's annual conference here in Washington, D.C. I had a chance to go to the conference last Thursday and Friday, sat in on a number of really interesting panels and discussions, did an interview, which I'm going to be uh, posting as a podcast in the next couple of weeks. But today and Thursday, I'm going to be posting two keynote speeches that were delivered at the conference. First up, Threats to Press Freedom, which is hosted by Sandy Johnson, president and COO of the National Press Foundation. Uh, the speakers included Margaret Talev, Bloomberg's senior White House correspondent, Margot Ewan, advocacy and communications director at the Reporters Without Borders for North America. And Kevin Goldberg, uh, who's been on the podcast before, the AAN's Legal Counsel. This is a great little talk. Uh, Both of the panels are going to be presenting this week are are really kind of focusing on the way the press is covering the White House right now and some of the issues that uh, are coming up. And uh, listen carefully and you will hear one of the uh, panelists being called away in the middle of it to cover a breaking news story. I'll let you figure out what that is. So enjoy our first panel. Make sure you check back on Thursday when we have David Fahrenthold uh, of uh, The Washington Post talking about his Pulitzer Prize winning reporting covering uh, the Trump campaign and Donald Trump's charitable contributions. Enjoy the panel.
2: Well, thank you, Bradley. I couldn't have teed up this panel any better than that. So as you said, I'm Sandy Johnson. I'm from the National Press Foundation. Uh, For 40 years, our sole mission has been training and educating journalists. Uh, We do training and programs on all sorts of subject matter issues, like environmental issues, public health issues, mental health training. We did a program on Tuesday, a one-day program on opioids abuse and substance abuse, and we had journalists primarily from Washington at that program but journalists from the United States are welcome to apply for our multi-day programs which we um, have all over the United States, St. Louis Des Moines, Phoenix um, and we're hoping to go out to the west coast um, later this year or early next year for some training programs so uh, please sign up for our uh, newsletter we're at nationalpress.org and keep track of our training programs
0: which are all free (laughs) <laughs> all free,
2: all expenses paid. I think that's we're the only training organization that has that business model. You guys know what Pointer charges, for instance. We also have a suite of awards that I want to that I want to mention. To you guys, um, we have nine awards. Some of them are very Washington oriented, like Best Coverage of Congress. Uh, some of them are national awards, like Broadcaster of the Year. But we also have awards that are applicable to you guys, and I encourage you to apply. Um, we've got an award for um, how federal uh, decisions affect local and, and state communities. We've got an award for uh, best, use of dig- best use of technology and tools in journalism. That's open to you guys, too. Uh, we've got another one on innovation and storytelling. So the people that were at this last session, I could tell that you're engaged with innovative storytelling. So I encourage you to apply for our awards when they open up in um, mid-August. And probably one of your brethren uh, from the Willamette News won one of our awards two years ago. So it's not just for the big guys. We, want, you know, we encourage everybody to apply for our awards. So with that, I'll introduce the panel. And um, to your right... We've got Margaret Taleb, senior White House correspondent at Bloomberg and the current president of the White House Correspondents Association. In the middle is Kevin Goldberg, your legal counsel, if you don't know Kevin by now. I can't imagine you don't know Kevin by now. Kevin also happens to be the current chair of the National Press Foundation Board of Directors. And then we have Margot Ewan, advocacy and communications director of Reporters Without Borders for North America. So I noticed that the uh, title of your conference is Monuments and Mayhem. We've got plenty of both here in D.C. Uh, We're going to start out with Margaret. And, uh, Margaret, I have two words for you. Anthony Scaramucci. (laughs) What does he mean for the groundwork that the Correspondents Association has laid with the Trump administration over the last six months?
3: Thanks, Sandy. (laughs) Uh so it's it's been quite a week. Um I um first of all, hi everyone. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Nice to meet you and hope to meet some of you after um the panel. Um so we have had 6 months with Sean Spicer as the press secretary and it has had its own set of kind of um the public storyline and then what it's actually like to be at the White House every day and uh now the incoming communications director, um, Mr. Scaramucci, who I didn't know because I didn't cover Donald Trump's campaign. I covered Hillary Clinton's campaign. So um, <clears throat> I didn't know a lot of the kind of uh, players, uh, including Mr. Scaramucci, myself, until just a couple days ago. I've met him a couple of times. His, my interactions with him were um, very cordial and polite, and uh, kind of his outfacing message in his um, early days at the White House um, have been... I want to have a reset with the press corps, um, you know, I respect the free press and, uh, for the state, and you have an important role here, and, you know, we're looking to have a good relationship, um, so, um, it probably doesn't match exactly with the last 12 hours or so, uh, and so I think we're, we're still trying to figure out, um, you know, <laughs> what day-to-day life is going to be like, but, um, Uh, But the short answer to your question is I don't know very much more than probably you do. Um, As a journalist, not as an advocate, just as a journalist covering the White House, um, it was certainly an unexpected story and a really unusual one. I mean, I haven't been around forever. I covered two terms of the Obama administration. I was in Washington for George Bush's administration or part of his administration, but not a regular at the White House. So, uh, but... Even talking to my colleagues who've been around since you know the Clinton days or before, um, what unfolded yesterday was pretty unusual. I, I'm not sure how much of it is a press issue other than the part that involved his conversations with Ryan Lizza and what they thought the terms of that were. But by the way, that's not a news story. That's, that's a story that's been around forever, which is a source talking to a journalist uh, thinking that none of that would ever appear, but not setting the terms clearly enough and then being surprised when it did. That's, that's just not a new story, and you guys all know that. That's not a social media story. It's not a Trump story. That is a story about sources and reporters. Um,
2: Can you talk a little bit about um, the access issues and other issues that you had uh, at the beginning and during the first six months working with the, with the Trumps? communications people
3: yeah for us the big unknown as uh, the correspondence association was um, that interim between the transition uh, between the uh, nominating conventions last year and the inauguration because what typically has happened um is that the nominees from both parties have agreed to sit down and have meetings with the Correspondents' association it takes place over a period of months hi this is us this is who we are we set up protective pools let 's do a transition pool, and by the time whoever wins we 'll all know each other, and things will operate smoothly and um, uh, both uh, both Trump and Clinton were really reluctant uh, to fully engage in that process, although it was more so with candidate Trump who didn't want didn 't have reporters on his plane. he wanted to take his plane. it just wasn 't set up that way. Clinton took reporters on her plane um, so it was normal in that sense but she didn't accept typical protective pool movements. So when uh, Trump won uh, the election, we had a very short time window to kind of engage in those relationships and were not able to real- until just a couple of weeks before he took office. So there was a lot of unknown about how it was going to be. But I have to say that once we sat down, uh, both with Sean Spicer, with Hope Hicks, with a couple of those top officials, uh... The way the way that the administration began and the way it's continued in many ways has, uh, in terms of that kind of access parameters, has been the way past administrations have been. We have a full pool that travels with the president in the motorcades and on Air Force One and is accommodated in pool sprays in the Oval Office and that sort of thing. Uh, I mean... You all know, because um, I know you follow this stuff, uh, what some of the differences have been, uh, both stylistically and substantively, in terms of um, the a lot of the information, that sort of access is different, like Obama's administration kept the visitor logs and that sort of thing, released the tax records. Uh, and I consider those access issues also. Uh, but in terms of day-to-day uh, being able to walk in and out of uh, parts of the White House uh, uh, or or see the president on a daily basis, our access on that level has actually been uh, quite good. But um, the kind of uh, mood or tenor or rhetoric is, is quite different. I mean, uh, we're not used to a sitting president um, kind of inciting critics. Um, and I had not... In covering the Obama administration, I'd not had the experience that I've had at a couple of uh, president Trump's transition events in particular um, and to a lesser extent uh, once he's taken office where you've had um, some of the people in the audience like throwing water bottles or you know yelling you know yelling things at you that's different um and it's not good uh, but it's not uh, but just to be realistic about what it's been like. There's been one or two times when I felt really uneasy, but for the most part, I'm able to move in and out of crowd situations and on and off the plane and all that sort of stuff in essentially a normal way and have found the staff at the staff level who manages the press to be like really professional and um, you know, pleasant, pleasant and helpful to work with.
2: There's, there's been a, a long brouhaha over the White House briefings, which you know you can roll your eyes and think that they're not terribly useful, and yeah. maybe journalists should be spending their time uh, doing you know some source reporting instead. But uh, you know news is produced at the briefings, Absolutely. and there's been an issue with audio and and uh, video recording of those. And where does that stand, Margaret?
3: Well, so uh, I don't want to make any sweeping pronouncements because it's been we're four days into the scaramucci tenure but uh it did seem to mark a a, again a reset point uh where the on-camera briefings began again this week and there's been a couple of them and sarah sanders has been at the podium mr scaramucci uh had been available for a lot of public comment and i'm sure will be again uh and and so it's hard for it's hard for me to say with certainty but i can talk about the possibilities of why that's changed i think um for one uh Sean uh, Spicer had, you know, had become a, a bit embattled. The briefings had taken on this sort of epic proportion where they had become this event in and of themselves, and he seemed to be in between a bit of a rock and a hard place um, in terms of how much, you know, he could maneuver them and and perhaps the president's comfort level with them. Um, Scaramucci came in with a different mandate, a different relationship with the president, um, and part of whatever he worked out with the president and taking that job obviously was to try to approach um, the public and out facing relationship with the press and the American public through those briefings in a different way. Um, but the briefings, um, I've gone through a few different permutations. Uh, and one of them is these sort of Skype interviews where they put someone from somewhere else on a screen. I actually think uh, that in concept, that's potentially really interesting and useful. You have a diversity of uh, geography, a diversity of opinion. Some of these are sort of niche or specialty publications, whether it's about the law or um, a part of the country. So you get a different kind of question. Um, to some extent they've been used to divert from <laughs> whatever the desire it collectively in the room is to talk about. Uh, the, the briefings have often been shorter uh, than past briefings and some of the Obama briefings went on too long, so you can argue there's a happy medium. But uh, there have been some briefings that the regulars have left feeling like there just wasn't a reasonable amount of time to cover the range of questions that needed to be asked, or to or to answer those questions with substance. I'll say one positive uh, difference in the briefings so far, um, often on the record, but sometimes on background. Has been um, the press shop under Sean Spicer and now Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, bringing in a lot of uh, high-level players in the administration to actually do those briefings. Um, whether it's the economic um, advisor Gary Cohn or, you know, HR McMaster on national security policy or the, the immigration and customs guy or you know what have you, the energy. Actually, the Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross is one of the best if you want to watch uh, one of those. But so, again, there, there's been some good and some bad. I would say the good is the diversity of the briefers and the openness to bringing some uh, non-traditional news outlets into the room uh, in a virtual sense. Um, the f- frustrating part has been the brevity of some of these um, briefings or the brevity of the answers, the inability to go very substantively and deeply into uh, answers. To, to real policy questions,
2: and what happens in Washington uh, can sometimes influence governors, mayors, people uh, at the local level. Kevin, what ramifications do you see from what's been going on uh, in the last six months for um, this, you know, reporters in in this group?
1: Yeah, so
0: I think there is sort of we've used the term delegitimiz- delegitimization of the press, delegitimizing of the press. And I think, you know, there is this idea this emboldening of officials at every level that, you know, they see, you, you you mimic what you see, right? And they see the the president of the United States treating the media this way and getting you know, applause for it. They they then see a candidate for Senate body slam a reporter and get elected the next day and they go, "Maybe maybe this is fine." You know, and that's troubling. It has not been that overt, except that I know we're going to talk about the state and local level. I I don't think that it's a coincidence that Dan Heyman was arrested in West Virginia and his charges have not been dropped. I don't think it's a coincidence that Greg Gianforte um, body slammed Ben Jacobs. And frankly, I'm not sure it's a coincidence that, that John Donnelly, who I know we both know really well, um, and I think you know as well. You know, was was as the quote he he loves to say this. I will always if you ever Google John Donnelly, you will always see manhandled next to my name. Was manhandled at the F- FCC. I think you the, that's what's happening, and we're seeing it trickle down a little bit. So an example was in Colorado, where a smaller town paper, the Grand Junction paper, um, wrote an editorial basically calling out some legislators for not moving forward. Um, some, you know reforms to the state freedom of information law and immediately one of those legislators called them out as fake news and it was not fake news first of all it wasn't news it was an editorial all right and and i think you know we all we know the difference but in any event i'm i know some of the people involved with that paper i actually do know the family that owns that paper and and it would not have been fake news even if it had been news they their reporting is good and we're seeing that a lot more. Just the idea that, the, you know, again, the message, and it's being used at the state and local level. I'm sure you guys are seeing this. The idea that, you know, that anything you don't agree with is instantly dismissed because, well, why not? We'll, we'll just shoot the messenger because we don't like the message. And I like to think of that every time. You know, if you see anybody come back with a response that is lacking in facts but simply says the media got it wrong, doesn't say why. You know, to me, I would say, well, that that's exactly what they're mimicking right there. Um, the president's, uh, you know, time. And apparently, this is not, obviously not new. This is just his way has always been his way to to you know shift the conversation. As they say, if you're if you don't like the conversation, change the conversation. So I, I've seen I've seen some of that growing. It's not new, though. I mean, um, people who have been around D.C. a long time will remember the the law, the governor from about. Now it's been 13 years, and we talked about this at our event, the NPF event we did during the transition. Um, Robert Ehrlich basically shut out two reporters from the Daily. I'm sorry, a reporter and a columnist from the Daily, and did not like what they were writing, and shut them out. Um, you know, told his staff, don't answer their calls. If we have a space-limited event, don't let them in. Otherwise, follow the law. Answer their FOIA requests. Let the, you know, don't, you know, don't, let, don't keep them out of open events. But so, you know, this was 13 years ago, and and that has been happening. I see it sort of, I get the sense that it's going to happen with increasing frequency and intensity, um, you know, to constantly point the finger as a way of changing the conversation.
2: And I want to get Margot into this conversation, too. Uh, Some of the tactics that we've seen here are, you know, shocking to those of us who have been here for probably too long. Uh, But what do you see in what's going on here know that has been going on perhaps overseas for a long time
4: what's going on um, in the Trump administration the, the violent rhetoric or sometimes not violent but accusing journalists of reporting false information um, is something that the world's uh, dictators and most repressive regimes for journalists have been doing for years but I have to say that they are watching Trump and taking cues from him which is what's really scary um, we published our annual ranking of 180 countries uh, in April, based on data collected throughout the year 2016. It's our World Press Freedom Index. Um, number one being the best climate for journalists to operate freely and do their job without fear of reprisals, and 180 being the worst. Uh, and we've had the, um, we've never had a, a worse global indicator for decline in press freedom around the world. Almost two thirds of. The world's countries actually declined in the past year. The United States itself fell in our ranking two slots. It's 43 out of 180 countries. Yeah, Margo,
2: I've got your slide. Do you want me to put that up or do you want to wait and talk sure. about it later?
4: Um, you can put it up if anyone wants to look at our World Press Freedom Map. I also brought some if anyone wants to take some. But something. first, a
0: contest. Does anybody know who's number one?
4: Yeah, that would be interesting. Close. Close. <laughs> Any- no. Norway, that's correct. But they had an upset this year. Um, They unseated Finland, which had been at the number one slot for the past six years. And the reason that Finland um, couldn't hold on to that slot is because the prime minister tried to interfere with a story that um, a newspaper wanted to publish on a conflict of interest. Uh, And that is actually in itself very worrying because you're seeing influence even in democratic countries uh, either they're trying to control the narrative so much that they kind of forget their democratic principles of free press, um, open access, transparency. So that's why you see countries like the United States slipping further. Countries like the United Kingdom also um, publishing, you know, its, uh, or passing its uh, snoopers charter last year. Um, and it's really worrying for Reporters Without Borders who's been monitoring the press freedom situation and publishing this index since 2002 to see increasing decline in, in countries where you think it can't get worse and also in democracies um, here in the U.S., also in Canada, um, but then across Europe.
2: Let's talk about leaks for a minute. Um, there seems to be a witch hunt going on, even more than... Um, We've seen in the last eight years, and indeed, you know, let's not let President Obama off the hook. There were more leaks prosecutions under the Obama administration than any previous administration. Uh, But the Attorney General said yesterday some people need to go to jail over these leaks. And on Wednesday night, the uh, Department of Justice uh, spokesman said this. We agree with Anthony Scaramucci that the staggering number of leaks are undermining the ability of our government to function and to protect this country. Like the, like the Attorney General has said, whenever a case can be made, we will seek to put some people in jail and we will aggressively pursue leaks cases wherever they may lead. So, Kevin and Margaret, how worried should reporters be about um, their sources and how they talk to their sources?
3: Well, I, there's two levels on which to be concerned, and one is for your source, and then the other is for yourself. And I, I think... It, In this country, at least, most reporters worry about the source, but it's probably true in most places, first, and themselves second. Uh, First of all, there are legal protections for journalists. Second of all, there are, at least until now, there have been public opinion protections for journalists. Um, uh, And uh, a lot of the restrictions governing the use or spread of materials that are not for public release, apply to the person who's chosen to share them, not the person who receives them so that's i'll leave that to the lawyer but um, you know technology uh, has always gone kind of hand in hand with how you handle this sort of stuff, and now there are more ways than ever for governments to track people who might be sharing information they're not authorized to share, and there are in theory more ways than ever to evade it um, but um uh, and this is probably a better question for you all, so uh, there are kind of old, hard and fast rules. I mean, I think, you know, c- calling someone on a government phone or on a government email is c- probably kind of stupid if you're talking about something you're not maybe authorized to be talking about. Um, you know, t- well, telling I, other people who you talk to and all that sort of stuff. But I, th- but I think this has always been true. It's just true in a different way now, both for the technological reason and for the kind of stated reason of the administration. That The question for the purposes of this panel is what's a leak? How many people in here are talking to, you know, the intel community about targets in Syria or something? Because for purposes of the political conversation, a lot of what has been called a leak is... That, it's a rhetorical word' subject to interpretation it's we're talking about uh discussions about who's up or who's down in inside the West wing or whether you know a certain policy is going to find favor with certain political officials or whatever um that's not really a leak and then there's the third kind of leaks, which are like completely authorized administration leaks, where a trial balloon gets floated for an idea to see whether Congress will sign off on a certain kind of tax cut or hike or whatever. Uh, This has traditionally been the purview of top administration officials in any administration, whether it's the chief of staff, the strategist, the communications director, the vice president, the president, uh, senior advisors who may or may not be related to um, the president. And so Uh, I'm not saying that all those people do leak or what they're leaking. What I'm saying is that in a normal administration where everyone's getting along well and talking to each other, a lot of things that we would call leaks are, like, agreed to internally and then just sort of they appear certain places before they're officially news and maybe they become news and maybe they never do. So set that category aside. Then there's everything else, which is, like, is the globalist wing winning or, you know, is somebody about to get... Named to a post or whatever, and again, that is—it's not really like a national security leak that anybody should ever get prosecuted for. So, uh, I have talked to some administration officials who say they are concerned that this is dribbled too much into the national security sphere, whether it's the contents of a speech, the contents of sanctions that haven't been locked down yet but are going to be locked down, and you know whether it has to do with um, surveillance or. Intercept stuff that gets picked up around Russia. That's like a completely different area and um, probably requires some actual knowledge of actual facts to talk about substantively. But I think a lot of what's being talked about, I hope, just by Anthony Scaramucci and not as much by the Justice Department, are leaks that are not really leaks in kind of the, the criminal or, or, or national security sense.
2: Yeah, and Kevin, can you address that? I mean, yeah. has the parameter for the danger zone for reporters gotten wider?
3: A little
0: bit, I would say. I mean, look, le- I think Margaret's right, though. When we hear all this talk about leaks, let's remember one thing. I can, you know, there has never been a successful prosecution, not even remotely close to a successful prosecution of a journalist for, you know, printing classified information that has been leaked to them. Okay, the only time in recent memory we even had a prosecution of a third party was for an APAC lobbyist and they they successfully had those claims had those charges dismissed. And that's with truly national security classified information charges brought under the Espionage Act, the kind that they would be looking at, you know, to bring if they were in the country against someone like Edward Snowden or against Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. I mean, that has never happened in in the United States, you know, to to the point where you should be worried about that. So I think we really kind of do turn to the second part, which is protecting your sources, and I think that's where you would want to be worried for a couple of reasons. Even if you're not covering... you know, national security issues, there are a lot of ways you can be swept up into being exposed trying to protect a source. Because remember, we have very strong protections for sources at the state level, and you may think that protects you. Except that when you make a promise to a source and the whole matter gets wrapped up in some kind of federal uh, prosecution or even federal civil case, you know, you're talking with something, I mean, the perfect example happened in Rhode Island about a decade ago with a local NBC affiliate reporter named Jim Terracani, who was covering corruption at City Hall in, in Providence. And it ended up that the charges being brought against the mayor and the mayor's staff that were, in, you know, involved in this kickback scheme all became federal RICO charges, right? You're covering City Hall, and then suddenly you're, you're, in, you're being asked to provide testimony in federal court, and you have no protection because there's no federal shield law. That's worrisome for everybody who talks to anybody on a matter of importance, even at the local level. I think another aspect of this is, for you in terms of legal protections, I think is that right during the Obama administration you know when when they made i think one of the there there were a lot of leaks prosecutions and a lot of bad decisions being made by the quote unquote we will be the most transparent administration in history which was By the way, just the worst thing to have ever said. You were never going to live up to that. And they did a a poor job of living up to it at times. They did a good job in other ways. But they're done. We're moving on Um, and have to talk about the now. And the now is that after their biggest screw-up, which was basically, you know, clandestinely um, getting the phone and communication records of reporters and even thinking about charging a single reporter as a co-conspirator in a leaks matter, which should worry everyone, um, and were caught and called out on it, they, the Obama administration, the Holder Justice Department, came to the table, sat down, and kind of rewrote their voluntary guidelines. Again, voluntary guidelines on what it would take before a reporter would get subpoenaed through the federal system. And things were in a pretty decent place, okay? We, don't, we do not know what's going to happen under this Department of Justice, although we have a good inkling I mean, we do not, you know, we know Jeff Sessions does not exactly love the media. So I would be worried that those voluntary guidelines are not voluntarily followed anytime, you know, when push comes to shove. And finally, in a practical sense, as, as we alluded to, the way in which you would interact with your sources is changing um you know the use of technology is really dangerous now i remember hearing at one point about 10 you know eight to 10 years ago and i know lucy dowglish uh talks about this used to be the head of the reporters committee for freedom of the press and is now the dean at a a pretty decent journalism school right you went to (laughs) yeah university of maryland talking about how you know she would have conversations with people in government and they would say you know we don't really need to subpoena you anymore. We, we know who the people in government are talking to. We're tracking that anyway. And I think there's, a, to a large extent, that's true. You know, the surveillance aspects of all of this, and I know, Margot, you can talk about this a lot overseas, is really what you need to be worried about. This, again, becomes a really good tool for you. You heard T- David Farren talk about it yesterday, is his notepad, right? That wasn't just a, a good reporter's tool. It might have been a good reporter's safety net mm-hmm. to keep himself you know out of trouble.
4: Um, If you want me to touch on the international issues, uh, especially our northern neighbor, which you may think Canada has a great press freedom record. I don't know if anybody is from Canada in the room. Yes. Um, So you probably have heard about the events of the last year. Um, At least seven journalists were spied on uh, or found out that they were spied on in previous years by Quebec police. Um, One of them, a prominent uh, columnist, Patrick Legasse spied on the early half of 2016. And it wasn't because they suspected the reporters of doing anything wrong. It was to ferret out their sources within the police department because of some internal struggle or political uh, power play within the police department. Um, That's very concerning in a a democracy like Canada, where you think that they would have better respect for press freedoms. um, There's also a vice journalist right now uh, fighting against revealing his source to uh, basically the um, Royal Canadian Mountain Police, who is an alleged ISIS fighter, uh, and that case will probably go before the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, and you have journalists getting arrested for covering an uh, environmental protest just like we had here in the United States, the North Dakota uh, Access Pipeline protest which involved the arrest of many um, journalists and citizen journalists. But this one uh, journalist that was arrested in Newfoundland and Labrador um, is still facing uh, both criminal and civil charges for his coverage of that protest. Uh, when you think about that happening in a place like Canada, what does that mean for the rest of the world? What kind of example is that going to set? Um, the press freedom ranking in our index for Canada has fallen, I think, 14 places in the last two years. A lot of that's carryover from the Harper administration, which was notoriously um, not transparent and didn't give access to reporters. And now you have Trudeau, who's kind of promised that he'll have a better record on press freedom. But in reality, what, is he, what has he done uh, since he took office? I mean, these things have still happened, and they really need to be addressed.
0: And I'll add one thing, of course. One of the big issues for American reporters is the border now. Coming in through Canada, you know, being one of them, that, you know, being asked for things like social media passwords and, and, you know, access to laptops at the border um, is really troubling and new. I I, I have had to broaden the scope of the issues I'm concerned about as your attorney and the attorney for other organizations when I go to Capitol Hill and the, the issues I'm tracking at the federal level you know, I didn't think that was going to be one of them. I was like, oh, we'll let the tech, the tech people handle that. But no, it's, a, you know, it's no longer just, hey, you know, anybody coming to the country. It's like they're looking at journalists now, mm-hmm. and they really want to know what you, uh, you know, have on you. And it's, it's bizarre.
4: If I could add to that, yeah. I wanted to say that there are a couple of journalists that we've been made aware of, and I'm sure there are a lot more whose cases haven't been made public, foreign journalists who can't come into the United States because they reported on sensitive stories, like maybe they have extensive contacts in Colombia with the FARC, and then they're labeled uh, part of a terrorist organization. So they're placed on the no fly list, their uh, work visas canceled, um, or someone who is working as a journalist and fo- uh, focuses on Iraqi Kurdistan can't come here as a tourist on a tourist visa because he's participating in alleged terrorist activity, and that's absurd. Because uh, there should be somebody looking at the work of those journalists and, and not ticking automatic flags of what constitutes um, suspicious activity that might keep somebody from coming into the United States and recognize that a journalist has to cultivate sources and contacts. And that doesn't mean that they're a threat to United States security. And uh, did, have you all had a session this, at this
2: conference about encryption tools? No.
0: We've done that before, though. We did that, okay. sorry, we, we did that. I think, a digital in San Francisco two years ago with people from EFF, and we've had those before. And probably need to put that in the agenda for Portland in February, right? Well, in
2: the meantime, the National Press Foundation did an encryption webinar with Shane Harris, an investigative reporter with The Wall Street Journal. It's on our website in the toolbox section, and he walks you through how to use all of these tools. Um, just to add to that, though, there are some editors and journalists who don't believe any of your digital tools are safe anymore um, tom kent the president of radio Free europe tells his reporters across the globe not to use devices because they can be tracked no matter what kind of device they are go face to face use a notebook and don't get caught because they're going to grab your devices and there's nothing you can do about it um, on the uh... local level uh, a friend of mine who's a veteran reporter at the State Department doesn't use his landline in the office, his cell phone. He doesn't call anybody at the office. The only phone he uses is a, um, what are they called? the phones that you buy at a 7-Eleven? Burners. Burn Burners, right, to talk to people. He's just gotten that paranoid. So. Um, Sandy.
3: Well, I, I was just going to say that uh, in addition to... our our own government, um, if you're invited to, like, an embassy or something, (laughs) might want to, depending, I mean, you might just, you might want to think about either how much is on your device, or whether you want to, if your news organization has them, take a clean device, or take the battery out and leave your device in the car with the power off, not bring anything in. Uh, Same with when you travel to other countries, Um, just think about what's on your computer, whether to Take a loan or computer if you have access to that. And it, that's one of the things where if you're w- with a large news organization, your tech guys can figure that out. And if you're uh, a freelancer or with a smaller news organization, it's just much harder to kind of, you've got to be everything. You're the reporter and the editor and, you know, now the tech expert and the encryption encryption expert. So if you're not sure, maybe take advantage of some of the resources out there to help game this stuff out. Just, I mean, it's not you don't necessarily have anything to be worried about depending on what's on your phone, but... Any contact that 's on your phone, the phone numbers, email addresses, uh, all that you know stuff is vulnerable to getting swept up, and then you can inadvertently provide data to people that you weren 't planning on sharing any information with
2: another thing we 're seeing is increased security around VIPs and elected officials. We know you 're seeing that out in the states as well. Um, uh, the colleague that, that uh, Kevin mentioned, John Donnelly, is a longtime reporter with. CQ a roll call and got roughed up at the Federal Communications Commission of all places. Um, <laughs> you know there were there were there was a very uh, controversial hearing on um, net neutrality and security was high and he approached a commissioner in a public hallway and um, you know it was manhandled and uh, not only that he went he was sort of rattled and went to the public lobby of the FCC building and a security guard threw him out said you can't even be in the building, which is, of course, not correct. Uh, Kevin, do you want to talk about some of the other issues that you've um, dealt with uh, around the country? And you alluded to some of these incidents, but will you, will you talk about the specifics of them? Maybe particularly, I've put the slide up behind us about uh, hotlines and, and legal advice that journalists can get.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're probably talking about Dan Heyman and and again, Greg Gianforte. Uh, I'm sorry, Ben Jacobs. Let's talk about the heroes, not the villains. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the Dan Heyman situation, if you aren't familiar with him, most of you are, if, because uh, he was working for Public News Service at the, was the West Virginia um, State House when Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price and Kellyanne Conway. Came to town and he wanted to ask a question about the you know future of the AHCA and the repeal of the AHCA and how it might affect West Virginia residents. And Dan works for Public News Service, which is actually a member of um, the media consortium. And so he's trying to ask this question and he's he's not getting close. to he's he's you know maybe probably shouting a question or two out, but it it was nothing. Nobody. It's nothing. People haven't done before. It's nothing that doesn't happen every day. And the next thing you know, he's been arrested. And what's really interesting is, you know, this was so unheard of that I actually was, because we kind of offer our legal hotline service to the media consortium, his editor, uh, Lark Corbell, um, called me up. She kind of was like, I don't know what to do. I've never had this happen before. Where do I start? And so, yeah, I mean, we have have, uh, AS&E up there. It's a similar legal hotline to AAN. um, But uh, we, you know... You have some some um, people you can reach out to. What I did, obviously, was talking to her, and she's like, I don't even know what, what to do first. You know, I said, well, okay, let me put you in touch with, give you a couple numbers. Call the Reporters Committee. They may have someone, a local attorney on the ground in West Virginia, maybe try the ACLU in your state. They're almost certain to want to help out now um, as well on a state-by-state level. But, you know, I mean, this is, this is, again, this is new territory, and, the charges against him, willful disruption of government processes, whatever that is, uh, have not been dropped. I mean, they're still pending. Just like the, just like the you know, yeah, I, I, I've tried to willfully disrupt government processes as much as possible. That's what I do for you, right? I mean, you know, let's, let's, yesterday, Aaron Cantu, works for an Ann Paper, facing eight felony charges, though apparently now seven, right, Boehner? One was dropped against everybody but still facing more than 70 years in jail on felony charges while he was covering the Inauguration Day protests in in D.C., and he was close to the action, but he wasn't part of the action, right? And he was swept up in this process we've talked about a little bit called kettling, which the D.C. police have done for a long time, where they just basically barricade you and a whole bunch of people into a space. And they didn't, you know, he said he was a reporter. They didn't care. They actually, you know, even knowing his reporter later, in, indicted him after the fact. I mean, they've had every opportunity to drop these charges, and it has not happened. I don't think the, you know, the Gianforte matter would have resulted in criminal charges if not for the fact that it was absolutely caught on tape in the moment and had eyewitnesses. That would, he, would have, he would have vehemently denied everything. He would have shifted the blame. He got caught. That's the difference with that one. All right? And that's, that's kind of the, the worst, like I said, the worst trend at the state and local level is that trickle-down effect that I've already alluded to. Um, you know, and, and again, really anything involved, uh, I think we're going into sort of the state and local trends. Yeah. A couple other things, anything involving police records, law enforcement, anything. We've talked in the FOIA session this morning about body cameras, access to body camera videos. That is the trend playing out visibly around the country and necessarily around the country. But I think what we're missing, again, kind of looking at that, is all the other state laws that are kind of dealing with access to information law enforcement is taking up in other ways, like license plate readers, stingrays, everything else, that all the data they're collecting from the public that's not being, you know, that is not being made public when it really matters. Um, there's actually a reverse trend where, where there's a bigger uh, desire to carve out personnel records involving law enforcement officers, and especially involving the identities or information around um, officer-involved shootings. There's been two or three state laws, starting with Oregon a couple of years ago, after the um, refuge, um, the, the Bundy family uh, situation out there in, in um, eastern Oregon, to basically say that, you know, we, we will actually hide the identity of an officer involved in a shooting, no matter what the situation is. And that, I, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not... I'm sympathetic to the privacy interest of an officer in that situation. But I also want, we have to be realistic that there's a public interest in all of this and in the situation at hand and to just wipe the slate clean and push it aside is is clearly not the answer. But that is the default that legislators are buying into right now. Um, so, a couple others, and then we'll move on to the good, and very quickly, one bad one is we are seeing um, a trend, we, we've seen some very good state anti-slap laws, and I, that is a term that is very well known, I think, to and members after the, the Washington City paper was sued by the local football team owner, Daniel Snyder, a few years ago, on what was clearly a quintessential slap lawsuit, strategic lawsuit against public participation. Anti-slap statutes are the types of things that get these things not only dismissed out of court quickly, but can get you your attorney's fees, which is unusual in the American situation for a winning defendant to actually get paid. But, you know, they provide a deterrent to frivolous lawsuits. We have some very good efforts. I said, there's one, you know, we've been trying to get this at the federal level for a while. There are actually some very good laws and efforts to create new laws at the state level. But oddly, some of these now, when challenged in court, um, certain courts have been saying, well, you can't apply the state law in federal court. And that really limits the applicability, because then what happens is there are ways to sue for defamation, not in state court, but in federal court, and it kind of you know, it moots the entire effort you've had. That's troubling, and we are working on that as much as possible. On the good side, we've had a, this is the last one, we've had a great couple of cases recently reaffirming that you have the right to film the activities of law enforcement officials um, doing their jobs. And, and, and do not let anyone tell you otherwise. You have a right in public spaces to film police Okay, as long as you are not interfering, getting in the way, you have a right to stand by and film police, and they can't stop you and they cannot make you delete those photos or video.
2: Actually, that leads right into what I wanted you to talk about. We've got the federal law up there that says that um, you know, they cannot seize your cameras, phones, equipment. But
0: never pick a fight with a man with a gun. I, I, I throw that in all the time. Look, the, at, at some point, you know, you know your rights and you should assert your rights. But I'm not going to be standing next to you when they're actually coming to grab your phone or do something worse. You make your decision in that moment, right, about what you are willing to do. But hopefully, as I've said a lot of the time, you don't make that decision in that moment. You have thought through this process already at some point, and it becomes a newsroom issue. We've talked about this in, our, in another MPF webinar we did. Actually, me and the manhandled John Donnelly. I will try to make that term happen as much as possible, <laughs> by the way. Um, MJD. (laughs) But, you know, I mean, we talked about it. It's it's really got to be a conversation and a planning process, a preparation process, as I call it, well ahead of time before you send a reporter into a dangerous situation. What are your expectations? What are you going to do? How are you going to protect yourself? What happens if it goes wrong? Everything literally down to, you know, who's our attorney? Do we know who our attorney is? Let's figure out an attorney. Let's not put his name on speed dial in our phone, or let's do that, but then let's also write the number on our arm Let's think about if it's really dangerous out there, like an inauguration protest, where you know things are going to boil over. Do we actually just find an intern to watch from the side and run away if the guy gets arrested? Because, you know, a spotter? Do we do all these things? How are we going to plan ahead of time? Because in the moment, like anything else, things go crazy. And you really want to, as I said, you want to be like that athlete that's done this so many times, that actor who's rehearsed their lines so many times that it becomes muscle memory about what to do when everything goes crazy around you.
2: And we know uh, this panel got started a little bit late, but uh, before we take your questions, we wanted to give Margot another shot at talking about what's going on internationally where, you know, it's even uglier than here.
4: Yes, um, so I do want to draw attention to a couple of... um, additions to the very, very worst uh, performers uh, among the world's countries in terms of press freedom. Uh, three countries entered the black zone, which is the the very serious situation in our map um, in the past year. That's uh, Burundi, Egypt, and Bahrain. Egypt and Bahrain are huge uh, prisons for journalists. Um, the repression in Bahrain against both uh, civil society and citizen journalists and professional journalists uh, is, is worse than before the uprising of 2011 and a prominent human rights defender was sentenced to two years in prison uh, last month just for giving media interviews a couple of years ago, talking about atrocities in Yemen. Um, so, that's very concerning. Um, Egypt, also another situation where it's much worse than before uh, the Arab Spring um, protests, uh, and of course, you know, recently both of those countries uh, were part of a group of countries asking uh, Qatar to shut down Al Jazeera and other media outlets, uh, which was very, very concerning um, and and really a a new level of using a media outlet in a pl- political diplomatic tug of war. Um, Thankfully, that demand was rescinded as part of their um, general demands to Qatar. But uh, Burundi's case is kind of a different situation. Uh, It's the consequences of the failed coup uh, in 2015 and the fact that so many journalists have had to uh, flee the country because they could be killed. Um, Just last week, we marked a one-year anniversary of a journalist named Jean Begirimana who went missing uh, and was last seen in uh, the company of the National Security Forces. Uh, It's probably likely that he died and was was murdered, um, and there have been no uh, attempts to formally investigate that death. Uh, You have independent journalists working uh, clandestinely, Uh, in the country, and they have to be very careful not to be revealed because they could be murdered. Uh, So it's a very serious situation in those countries. That's why they have kind of entered the, the very lowest of the low. But then you have other countries like Turkey and Mexico, which are probably sliding further and further. Um, as you know, this week, or maybe you didn't know... Yeah,
0: there was a big discussion about Turkey on the uh, one of the listservs this week. Right. Yeah.
4: So uh, there was a massive trial held this week in Turkey against uh, 17 journalists from an opposition newspaper called Çumariyet. Um One of the journalists, very prominent journalist named Sean Dundar, uh, was arrested uh, I believe last year in pre-trial detention. Uh, his wife came to D.C., held a press conference calling for his release um, and... Ever since the failed coup of last summer, things have gotten a lot worse, so they were already pretty bad. Um, So now you have more than 150 media outlets that have been closed, Um, over 100 journalists in jail. It's the largest prison in the world for journalists now. And the arguments that were brought forth by the prosecution this week against these journalists for Chumriyat are uh, laughable. They're being accused of um, participating in terrorist activity, and there are a lot of factual errors in their arguments against the accused um like they didn't even research it so it's just total deterioration of any kind of democracy in turkey and any kind of journalism journalism itself is on trial uh and we're probably going to be seeing a lot more decline um like in the next index that we publish and in mexico it's the deadliest uh country for journalists in the western hemisphere and uh i think it's either third or fourth of the top five deadliest countries in the world Uh, and it's not a country that's at war it's journalists, uh, local journalists mostly who are uh, in danger of being murdered, um, and there are no investigations afterwards into those responsible, which creates this climate of impunity, and it makes it very unsafe for journalists to do their job. And um, one such local journalist even attempted to come and seek asylum in the United States. His name was Martin Mendez Pineda. There's a story in the Washington Post about him. Um, he self-surrendered at the border, had an attorney helping him file for asylum. He received death threats um, in Mexico. He was very afraid for his life for good reason. There have been about, uh, I think, eight reported killings of journalists this, um, in 2017 alone. And he was detained for three months at the U.S. border and told uh, that despite having a credible fear of these threats, he didn't have enough ties to the community to stay, even though many organizations like the National Press Club um, and RSF and CPJ vouched for him and were willing to take him in um, he actually decided to go back because the conditions of his detention were so serious. So these, um, these two countries, Turkey and Mexico, are just kind of an example of the decline that is consistent, um, that we're going to be seeing more and more countries among the worst offenders and the worst places to practice journalism.
2: Okay. With that, I think we'll take your questions. That was lifting that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Do you all have a handheld mic to, to hand around or do I need to repeat the questions? Excellent question. So the question was um, journalism has always been stressful, but perhaps more so now than ever. How do you
3: take care of yourself? And by the way, like you don't have to, but if you want to introduce yourself or say who you write for or who you work for, I think like, I'd be interested to know your background too. Oh awesome. Cool. Um, well thank you for the question. I'm gonna separate like what I do from what people in Burundi and Mexico do, and say that on the worst day of my career ever, I've never had to work under conditions like that, and those are like the real heroes, and that's a different kind of stress, right? So um, part of what's so stressful about covering this new administration is just that like, he's, he doesn't want to sleep, and so stuff happens all the time, and so you can't sleep, and it takes like thousands of years for the human body to evolve. And... <laughs> I just can't like it doesn't work. So, I um I uh I, like, I don't need a lot of sleep. I need like maybe six and a half hours sleep a night, but I get like about four and a half now. And um I'd say um it's reflected in hair loss, weight gain, and slight alcohol <laughs> overconsumption. So it's not good for your friendships, your family life, or like. Anything here, or here, or whatever. It's just like it's hard. It's really hard, but it's um. There's you know times when you have to rise to the occasion. I think that's what we're all trying to do. But n- nobody sleeps in that building. Nobody, not the people who work there, not the people who cover the people who work there. Um and um, I covered the start of the Obama administration, and that was like for about six months. That was like a fire hose. But we're at the six-month <laughs> mark and nothing's changed. So I just don't know how long it's going to last. I mean, um, so on the f- nine-day foreign trip to Saudi Arabia where we were, like, dancing with swords. where I, I wasn't, but the president of the United States was. Um, I kept a sleep log just out of curiosity. And I slept a median of 3.5 hours per night for nine days. And, um, there, you know... It's not like I was driving a tractor trailer, but you're writing about stuff that could move markets or affect international diplomacy, and you're, like, doing it without 100% of your normal faculty. So that's concerning. Uh, I think, like, during the transition, um, some of the, like, when you go to a rally and people were, like, you know, shouting stuff at you, that was kind of scary because you're, like, is this real? Am I going to get hurt? Or is this just kind of, like, um, the act? And... And you have to learn to live with it. And so far, it's been more that. Um, not that it's, like, okay, but it's not, it's not like covering news and covering drug cartels in Mexico or something. So, um, so that was stressful for a while, kind of the unknown, like, what's it going to be like? But I think as, like any new administration, there's a level of stress about trying to understand what to expect. And even administrations that act friendly toward the press in a public outfacing um Variety always, and it's always more difficult on the inside. This is like the inside out version of that game where, so like my favorite um, story about this is, um, do you remember when he went to the Boeing plant like a few months ago and he was like, gave a speech in front of this like big dream line. It was like a free thing for Boeing and it was jobs and stuff. And then we were going to go down to Mar-a-Lago, but on the way we stopped in Orlando for this rally with like, I don't know, 10,000 people or whatever it was. And we're about to land in Orlando, and the president comes back to the plane to say hello. And uh, he's like, oh, hey, how's everyone doing? And um, uh, we said, well, most of us hadn't covered his campaign. We said, could can you stay for a minute and shake hands? We want to introduce ourselves to you. He said, sure, that'd be great. So he smiles and shakes about each of our hands. Nice to meet you. Oh, yeah, I recognize your name. Have you seen you on TV? Oh, good to see you again. And then we say, well, like, what's the speech about? What are you going to talk about? And he said, oh, I'm going to talk about unity and how um, we're all unified except for with one exception. And he gets off the plane and he delivers the speech, and we're the exception. <laughs> so I just, like, learning how to... Um, like, learning that dynamic has just been an ad- adjustment, and now it, it, I think we're all starting to get a rhythm. I'm not sure how long it will hold or if it's real, but it's um, sleep, I would say, is, is actually the main challenge.
0: I, I, I was going to say, get this, you know, get this woman a drink, but she keeps looking <laughs> yeah, at her yeah. phone for good reason. It's 5 o'clock on, on Friday, Fridays. which, frankly, most of us would be headed to happy hour. We're all going to reception later. We all know this, this is when the news breaks in this White House, right? The rhythm that you talked about seems to be completely off.
4: Margot, do you have anything to add? Oh, well, um, I'm a press freedom advocate, so I don't have the same kind of stress level or risk taking that the journalists have. But I have to say that the change in administration and the willingness to cooperate or advocate for journalists that might be imprisoned abroad uh, has drastically declined. We would like to work with this administration on those cases, but it feels increasingly like we don't have the same avenues to turn to like that we did under the Obama administration. Um, and, of course, there's that kind of secondary oh traumatic yeah. stress that can news. happen when you yeah. are following... See?
3: Go. There's news. I'm sorry, Donald Trump just announced that he's named a new chief of staff. So I really do actually but have to go. No. Say it again. Say
4: <laughs> there's, there's a new chief of
3: staff. Oh. Sorry, i got to go. <laughs>
0: Sorry. 451 on a Friday. Yeah. <laughs> She's going back thank to work. Well, <laughs>
2: Jeff Sessions is hunkered down somewhere.
0: <laughs> there you go people. Breaking news Facebook live. <laughs> Welcome to DC, Ann. <laughs> we can we can we can try to hold this down. Our rock star is gone, man. But thank you again to Margaret. My gosh. You yeah. Yes. You know,
2: so the so the question is you can be charged, but are judges more inclined to go along with this or not? Did I? Get um,
0: that? Okay. Yeah, and I think the answer is no. They're not more inclined to go along with it, but that doesn't really matter. I, I you know, I, I think I said this again during our MPF webinar on December fifth, was it something like that? Um, where I said, you know, I used to, I had a boss who used to say that the most important thing this country ever created was not. The First Amendment, and he was a media lawyer, but you know the an independent judiciary to uphold the first Amendment and I again, you know I think margot can can certainly back this up i 've done some overseas work, and the independent federal judiciary is is truly like over in other countries where you have basically judges that are bought like in the Gambia i was I was doing a consultation there for an NGO, and seven of the nine Supreme Court justices at the time in the Gambia in Africa, smallest country in Africa were actually Nigerian and brought in by the president, picked and brought in by the president I mean that's it, it's, you just thank your you know, thank everybody that we have these federal judges especially and state judges you know there are elected state judges that will uphold, I think, and will continue to uphold. I firmly believe that they will. But, of course, it just takes a lot of stress out of you. I mean, again, look at Aaron. He's, he's been going back and forth from Santa Fe to D.C. It disrupts your job. It costs you money. You have to hire a lawyer. It's not unintentional. I mean, frankly, Donald Trump has been known, was well known for years to bring lawsuits that were loser lawsuits. And with regard to the one he brought against his his the ghostwriter of his his biography, you know, he brought a frivolous lawsuit when the guy said he wasn't worth as, you know, as much as Trump claimed he was worth, and he brought it for billions of dollars. And when he inevitably lost, he said, it's okay. I spent a few bucks on legal fees. He spent a whole lot more. You know, mm. it's, it's I, I do think you will continue to win cases. I do think charges will continue to be dropped. But that's not, it's just not enough. It, it takes its toll. And I think intentionally will continue to happen in that regard.
2: Let's go to this side of the... Sorry, I just wanted to hop
4: on to that, though. As independent as they may be, I think there's still a lot of public opinion... Can you hear me? Okay. There's um, still a problem with public opinion against journalists and against whistleblowers. Mm. And take Reality Winner's case. She's accused of leaking a document that doesn't embarrass the U.S. government. It informs American people about interference from a foreign power in our election. And she's being treated with the same severity as people like Chelsea Manning or uh, even Jeffrey Sterling, who was accused of being the source of James Risen, and they didn't even prove direct evidence that he ever leaked any information to him. He was basically uh, convicted on metadata. And and Risen almost went to jail because he refused to name his source. Um, and he was subpoenaed for that, and, and that actual lack of a privilege at the federal level is still unresolved in the courts because the Supreme Court didn't want to rule on it. So that to me is very concerning. No matter how independent our judiciary is, this notion that national security is this untouchable realm which gets larger and larger and larger um, basically to cover any kind of information that the government doesn't want revealed. And you know, on Sunday, it's National Whistleblower Day mm-hmm. and I think we should all take the opportunity to really kind of take a look at what these people have revealed and how much it's changed our lives and how much that information was valuable to us. Um, and that the judges really don't see their side of the story. They see a traitor. They see somebody who betrayed their government.
2: Let's go to this side of the room in the red. Question, how do you, how do you, re, how do you respond to a fake news claim?
0: Um, you know, I mean, I would... Uh... Boy, I'm not an editor or a journalist, but this is this is like the, the big question, isn't it? I would say with transparency, look, I know what you do. I know how you work. I'm not sure the public appreciates the level of effort that goes into your stories, the sourcing that goes into your stories. I think more transparency on your part is always good. If you are in the FOIA session this morning and i know it's really mundane it really is but rick bloom pointed out near the end like look when you use public records in your stories cite to it you know if you're publishing online and you have the source documents link to them and and, and it's really like i think that goes a long way um, we we have a you know bigger as much as anything a media literacy problem in this country right now that's a, that, same, it's it's really reaching, reaching a crisis proportion i think um, and and that, you know, you will hear people talk about all the time, I'm not breaking new ground. But that's, I think, the, the more you can do to fight that fight yourself, the better. And, I you know, not only do I want to hear Margot answer this if she wants to, but I think Sandy, I think you as a former editor have a lot to say about this, especially with the Press Foundation. And we've tackled yeah. these titles. We have resources on that, too.
2: Go ahead, Margot.
4: Um, uh, well, I think that the term has been thrown around so right. frequently. It's like the knee-jerk reaction of the president, for all we know. Um, and I think there's a certain aspect of rising above it um, and just kind of ignoring that. And there's going to always be a, po- a portion of the population that's going to keep leveling that at you and not understand what a retraction is or an apology or firing somebody who maybe got something wrong. Because that's happened from some of our biggest news outlets, um, and they don't really see that. It's, it's they're almost like, like they're gotcha. not, their mind yeah. can't be changed. So you're you're not really going to overcome that. Um, so you really do have to rise above, focus on the facts, keep doing what you're doing, and I think the you know your advice to, to link to things is really important as well. Um, people, sh- you know, who read the news, they should know the difference between editorial and yeah. news, but not we everyone don't. does. <laughs> so yeah, um, that's what I have to say. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and uh, you know, my inclination when someone. Tweets or does something that is inflammatory is to go on the attack. It's just my nature, but the uh, be- my she better knows. angels, she otherwise known as my staff, have convinced me that that's absolutely the wrong thing to do. Just let it roll off your back, um, and yeah, bombard them with the facts. Just put as be as transparent as you can. Uh, auto audio record as many of your interviews as you can, so that you've got proof of what someone says, so they can't say that it was made up news. Uh, video is even better, and citations—just you know—have those links all over your content, and respond with that.
0: I think yes. Baynard had a question. Oh. I want to hear Baynard's question because, sorry to everyone else, because he's always got good ones.
2: <laughs> Baynard, all right.
0: In the back. You—you the... you told me an interesting story yesterday about about one of the MPD cops who who you know kind of knows you pretty well and and is you know keeping his eye on you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, in terms of arrests, wouldn't that be Reporters Committee for Freedom yeah, of the I Press? Yeah, I think the Reporters have Committee tracks that? that. We have right. stats. We have you, stats as for well. the U.S.
4: Uh, so we're actually working on a project um, with the Reporters Committee, the Committee to Protect Journalists, Freedom, um, of, the fa- the freedom, freedom of, the of the Press Foundation. Is the Freedom of the Press Foundation? On um, tracking these incidents in a in one actual place, like one database. Um, more news on that next week. But um, in terms of the data that we collect, um, we have all the data we collect for the index, so we do track the number of arrests. It's not um, visible in a database. We do have people that are currently in prison and then journalists that are killed, on our website um, so you can always consult that but I've noticed that under the Obama administration um, you had journalists getting arrested for covering um, Black Lives Matter protests all the time so that's not new no. um, and it's not like it was ordained by Trump for journalists to get arrested at the um, inauguration protests in D.C. I mean that's a D.C. police issue and then all the journalists getting arrested in, in North Dakota both in the fall of last year and earlier this year um, right, standing, and, rock, right. yeah. standing Rock Standing yeah. Rock. Yeah. so I mean it's not new and not really necessarily linked to Trump
0: You hit on an interesting point, and I'm not even sure this was really what you were asking or trying to comment on, the idea that we don't need you anymore is a big one through all facets of... um, You know, reporting. We've been very big in in Anne and and my work with other clients on credentialing issues, you know, covering sports and especially for this group, entertainment. The Washington City paper took a stand on it when the Foo Fighters were in town a couple years ago on July 4th and said, you know, the credentials you've issued are just terrible. We will not accept them. We will not cover you. And God bless you because it was like the first time I had seen anybody really take that stand at such a big event. But the reason they had to do that is because the credentials, the things you are being asked to give up in order to cover events, you know, non-governmental events, are so different than what they were before. We want you to give up copyright and all the photos you've taken, blah, blah, blah. Well, why Why is this? Because they know they don't really need you anymore. And that's happening, we're now seeing it very much so on the on the. You know, government side as well, and and it's been increasing. Obama was the Obama administration was great at using Flickr, right? And for photo ops, Trump is great at using Twitter for that, or at least believes he is. Um, You know, in terms of getting his message out, I don't need you anymore. Uh, You know, I'm I've you know I've got my outlet, I've got Fox and Friends, and that's good. And I've you know I've got my mouthpiece, so we don't need you, so we're not going to interact with you, and in fact, we're going to further marginalize you. That's the changing landscape that has been occurring that helps make this happen. Is it the reason? No. Is it a reason? Yes. And it's just part of this, like, it's not part of this administration. It's been happening for years. But it all coming together provides that that ability for all of this to happen. And it's something that I think really we hadn't touched on yet, but I want to get out there. I mean, you know, this is a fight that will go beyond government. It'll go to sports. It'll go to entertainment. It'll go to all kinds of events you want to cover um, because... Increasingly obviously social media has has kind of taken the need for for mainstream, you know, any publications out of the equation to some yeah. extent.
2: Margot, one more I mean, can you give us a little more detail on this database? When's it coming out and or how can they contribute to it or find it?
4: Well there's not much I can reveal before the hard launch. Um I would say tune in um middle of next week when we formally launch the project. Can
2: you, can it be made available to yes, it's going by to email to everyone who's in this I'll, I'll, conference? I'll keep an eye out and try to make okay. sure
0: that we, we tweet it out to everybody and every and, and get it out, yeah.
2: Okay. And was there a question over here? Do I need to repeat that or did everybody hear a like
4: um, it's really, it's really tough times because I, I completely hear what you're saying about how um, it's just the factual reporting is not reaching a certain portion of the population, um, and you have especially stories that are life and death, like uh, reporting on the Flint water crisis. That's a life and death story, um, and that wouldn't have been, uh, you know, made made known to the people affected by it if it weren't for that local journalist who reported it. Um, I think that uh there's a danger to get caught in the feedback loop of defending um the press every time the president attacks it because I feel like it's a it's a diversion tactic to actual um news coverage and so I think that the more uh that you can kind of Maybe not put your head down, but keep covering the stories uh, and and worrying less about the public opinion because I think that you you really have to focus on your métier, your craft, and and put that above others. Um, and for us, I mean, the we always try to work on advocating for the lowest common denominator. No journalist should be killed in pursuit of their work. No journalist should be jailed in pursuit of their work. Um, that still does appeal to the United States government. They still uphold those uh, principles internationally, um, and they, they still have interest in, in, in seeing journalists released abroad. They may not communicate about it, but it is still the founding um, one of the founding principles of this democracy. And so... Yeah, but... Well, it's not the majority that feels that way. It feels like a larger number, but I don't think that it's the majority of the people in this country. I think there's... There is a significant amount, but no, no. We're definitely heading in a situation and into a, a climate where people distrust the media more and more. Um, but there's also readership that's up of some of these publications, which are repeatedly being called uh, fake news. So I think that you ought to have to, you gotta have to look at the glass half full in that regard to keep yourself going because uh, y- you have a, ser- you're performing a service and you're informing people whether or not they they want to realize it. You know at the moment that they're reading your story, they will eventually realize it. And could,
2: could I just add quickly, uh, one of the things that we've been training journalists on is solutions journalism and community engagement. And as an old school journalist, I have to admit, I sort of roll my eyes at that stuff. But when you see veteran journalists talking about what they've been doing in their communities, you know, um, I know a young woman in Florida who did a, a, a project on Medicaid and they did a, like a, almost like a, a health fair. They didn't really spend any money on it other than publicizing it into the community and being there with some public health screeners and telling the community, look, you want to know about you know, the series that we wrote, here's some resources for you, because you know the, a lot of times our audience doesn't understand. You know, we write about these issues, but we don't tell them where to get more information or where they can get help. So that's just one way to, you know, maybe, what, maybe they'll think better of us if we're more helpful to them instead of just describing problems. And, yes, I'm sorry, you've been very patient. What?
0: Yeah.
4: But the, the local press is so important, and yeah. it's dying. And but so that's where it starts, that's where it starts.
0: I agree 100%. I mean, you, you personalize everything you do. You make, it, you, know, you make it about the community that you're living in and working in. We see that over and over, over again. You have to make the connection to the reader. Um, you know, and again, I'm not telling you anything new, but I know that when I, for instance, when I go to Capitol Hill, what resonates with the lawmakers? It's not that I'm here on behalf of AAN, or I'm here on behalf of the American Society of News Editors advocating for FOIA reform because it's good for journalists, or anti-slap because it's good for journalists. There's a reason the Free Flow of Information Act is the title for every time you know has been the title every time the um, the Federal Shield Law has been introduced because it's about information flowing to the public that needs to happen, and you are the intermediary, nothing more. You know, you are you are the surrogate for the people, but you are part of them.
2: Last question. Right. So, so the question is about, um, I guess, government organizations and corporations creating their own news yeah. and I'm putting it up on their websites and tweeting it
0: out. Well, that is kind of what I was talking about earlier. Again, with you know, with regard to that, that they don't need you to get the message out anymore. They have their own mouthpieces. They have their own writers. Um, you know, I, I suppose the only good thing about that is half of them are you know refugees from your own papers you at least know them when you go for questions right <laughs> you know, at the federal level how many of the, uh, the flax are are former journalists? i mean you know that's because that's because they're paying um you know yeah i mean I, I see it again i make the reference in sports all the time so like the chicago bulls like writer you is sam smith right for their website and he at one point i don't know if he still is but he used to be like the greatest beat writer and you know in the nba he covered all those great bulls teams and now he's writing for the team and so what do people see they see the great Sam Smith, the best basketball writer Chicago's had for a long time, you know, and and he's writing for the team, so it must be true. It's not propaganda. I mean, that is that's clearly the worry, and you have to. That's where you have to explain the difference really well and why it matters, because that's yeah, that's where you know the. That the danger does come in. I think it's going to continue to get worse as there's more money. You know, governments realize that there is there is opportunity, and they have the money to do what you frankly don't right now, Mm. which is put more and more people on their their beat.
4: I second that.
0: So I want to first. I want to thank Sandy Johnson for for moderating our panel and
1: (laughs) Margot.
0: Thank you for joining us. Kevin put the the panel together today, and I really appreciate him. Remember that we have a legal hotline, and Kevin's that person, so please use him. It's available. It's one of the member services.
1: Next time on It's All Journalism.
0: The largest donation in the history of the Trump Foundation was $5 million from Vince and Linda McMahon, the wrestling moguls and now head of the Small Business Administration. Um, (laughs) Linda is, Uh, and so they, about the time that Trump was on WrestleMania in 2007, they gave $5 million, which was much more money than the McMahons gave to any other charity and much more money than anybody else had ever given to the Trump Foundation. So there's obviously something there, um, but I can never figure out what it was. The the McMahons always said it was just a a charitable gift uh, to this charity whose main purpose was to, like, satisfy Trump's social obligations. Um, So I I never figured that out, and I'd still love to.
1: Make sure you check back in on Thursday when I post the second of our panel discussions from the Association of Alternative News Media's annual conference in D.C., David Ferrenhold of The Washington Post dishes the dirt on the big story that won him the Pulitzer Prize last year. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, stitcher soundcloud google play and now podcast one this week's podcast was a bit of a one-man band for me this week i did uh, all the recording and the producing and editing but uh, there are plenty of people who are behind the scenes on this podcast to help us make great audio every week those include our producers amber healy and nicole grisco and nick dupre wrote our theme music